Hello, everyone. While we are in between our seasons, we thought we would do a couple of replays. This first one is going to be a replay of our episode about the St. Moritz Winter Games in 1928, because when we come back for season three, the Olympics will start off in 1948 by returning to St. Moritz. So we thought this would be a good little refresher, hopefully while you are kicking off a wonderful new year, and we hope you enjoy it. Raise the flag. Light the cauldron. We, we declare, declare the, the Games Odyssey, Odyssey open. Welcome to the Games Odyssey podcast, your home for stories of glory from the Olympics and Paralympics. I'm Jonathan Jordan. And I'm Sarah Patton. We both love the Olympic and Paralympic Games, and we love history. But most of all, we love Olympic and Paralympic history. From the epic and inspirational moments we all love, to the, well, the more bizarre and controversial moments, we're fascinated by it all. Which is why we are on a journey through all of the Olympic and Paralympic Games, from the ancient Olympics held at Olympia, all the way to now. All right, we are back, Sarah. <laughs> After what has felt like an unintentional gap of time. I know, I know. I know the past few weeks have been a whirlwind. Yeah, we didn't mean to take a mid-season break, but uh, it kind of turned into one there for us. So we went out of town, out of time. We went out of town twice uh, to Orlando and then to California. And then in between that, you guys traveled a couple times too, I think, right? Mm -hmm. Where did you go? Yeah. We went to Tennessee, which that was only a two-day trip, but it was like smack dab in the middle of your trips, I think. So yeah. it was it was hard to connect. Yeah. So. I know. We we kind of texted back and forth a couple of times of, hey, when might you be able to record? And then I was trying to like rush the episodes to get them ready. And then it was just like, nope, we missed our window. <laughs> but yeah. but that's okay. We do this for fun. So so we're back now yeah. to talk about 1928 and uh, just as a refresher, since it has been a little bit of time, uh, a couple episodes ago, we did talk about the Winter Sports Week in Chamonix, France, which was then retroactively recognized as the first Winter Olympiad. But today we're going to head to Switzerland for the second Winter Olympiad. Uh, but of course, the first one publicly recognized as a separate event. And so we're actually going to be starting a theme that we're going to see come up over and over again, especially with the Winter Olympics, which is weather problems. <laughs> so that kind of leads us into our first question that I thought of when doing this research, which was, in your opinion, do you feel like there are more weather problems in the summer or the Winter Games? Or, or do you feel like it's pretty even handed? completely wrong here but I feel like it's Mm -hmm. more in the winter games that we see (laughs) weather problems I mean and and I say this coming in 2022 we just had the Tokyo Olympics the summer games last year and we know that they moved the marathon to a city further north um, because of the heat so I know that the heat can pose issues especially for outdoor sports and especially the endurance sports but yeah 
feel like there's been many times that, especially in recent history, I'm thinking about Sochi. I think they had weather problems. They where they did. they're having to bring in artificial snow, and people don't know if it's going to be the right condition for a Winter Olympics. So, yeah, at least in recent memory, unless I'm missing something, I feel like it's more likely to be a problem with the winter sports. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I definitely remember that happening with Sochi, uh, especially with the half pipe competition. There were some serious issues with keeping enough snow and ice in the half pipe (laughs) for the competition and having to create more artificial snow halfway through the games. And then, yes, we saw the same thing, especially with the Paralympics in Beijing this Mm -hmm. year, where you would see some of those wide shots on NBC where there'd be greenery everywhere except right on the the ski course where the snow was. And and things got really slushy for a lot of those Paralympic athletes, especially in the biathlon. So so yeah, so maybe it's just a recent memory thing that it feels like there's more weather problems. Because with the summer games, I feel like, yeah, we talk about the heat being a problem, but there's a part of me that says... Well, duh, it's the Summer Olympics. Mm-hmm. We, we kind of have to expect it to get hot sometimes. <laughs> right, right. So. And and you can, even if it's uncomfortable, even if you have to drink more water, even if you go a slower pace, you yeah. can still participate in those summer sports as opposed to like if there's no snow, you can't ski. So <laughs> exactly, it, it seems very different. <laughs> Yeah, it feels like more of a hindrance for the winter games when there are weather Mm -hmm. problems. With the summer games, if it starts raining or something like that, um, you do run into problems sometimes with the texture of the track. And there can be thunderstorm issues, of course, that could be safety issues for the athletes. But but yeah, you're absolutely right. In terms of actually being able to hold a competition, winter games are going to be affected more (laughs) by the weather than summer. At least that's how I feel. But but yeah, we're going to see that come up here in 1928, St. Moritz. And I'm sure we'll see it come up more and more times as we go through the Winter Games. So let's go ahead and go into a little bit of an overview of what we're going to hear about in this episode. And then we'll jump into some highlights. So overview for St. Moritz, 1928. A new era in Olympic history begins with the first truly standalone Winter Olympic Games and a new IOC president following Pierre de Coubertin's retirement. The Winter Games head to the resort town of St. Moritz in Switzerland, where the Swiss organizers appear to have everything under control, except, of course, the weather. (laughs) (laughs) So I think they can be forgiven for that. So, um, but yeah, Sarah. Let's get into some highlights for St. Moritz 1928. All right, let's do it. So some highlights include the games ran from February 11th to February 19th with 464 athletes from 25 nations competing in 14 medal events. So that's a pretty good number for the second winter Olympiad. It was the first truly standalone Winter Olympics since Chamonix 1924 had been planned originally as part of the 8th. Olympiad. These were the first Olympic Games to be presided over by the new IOC president, Henri Count de Bayelotu. More on him in a bit. Japan became the first Asian nation to participate in the Winter Games, sending six athletes. So that's super exciting. 
Yeah. And, you know, I know. I'll just go ahead and say it. I know that we're biased to Japan. We love Japan. Sure. Um, we do. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about that more. Sure. Um, this was also the Olympic debut of Skeleton. Yes. Otherwise, I know I'm so excited <laughs> about that. Otherwise, the Olympic program was trimmed up from the 1924 Games, cutting alpinism, military patrol, and curling. Bum, bum, bum. Sad that day. means... I know, I know, I love curling. <laughs> we all know this. That means there were only eight events contested. As you said, weather was a problem. The opening ceremony actually took place in the middle of a blizzard, but other events would be plagued by rising temperatures, including the cancellation of the 10K speed skating event. But we'll get there. This was also the first time the IOC officially endorsed a film about the games the silent Swiss documentary film, The White Stadium. So that brings me to the question. Have you ever watched any of the official films about the games? So kind of like we've talked about before, this is where I guess I have to turn in my Olympic fan card and my movie fan card because I have not watched any of the official films all the way through. I have seen snippets here and there of different films, but I guess I have not had the patience to be able to sit through an entire one yet. So that's to my shame. And I know, you know, a lot of people out there are really big fans of the official Olympic fans or uh, Olympic films. But yeah, I have not done it. How about you? Yeah, I've seen snippets, but like you, mm-hmm. I've not done it in its entirety. I'm trying to think. I think I got pretty close to watching the official 1936 one all the way through. Mm. But that's because it was such a unique year yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, from a historical standpoint, uh, which we'll get there eventually. But yeah, I've never done it in its entirety. And I've seen snippets of the White Stadium, but yes. just not all of it. So. Maybe yeah. that's something I'll do eventually. Yeah. You know, one of these days when we magically have time to sit down and I know. all of them. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but anyway, I know. But, but it's nice that they are out there to help us remember those games and that this was the first time that we had that officially endorsed film available so that generations later on can can get a flavor for what the games were actually like to attend. Mm -hmm. So on that note, let's take a little bit of a break and then we're going to come back and get into the background of how the games ended up in St. Moritz. So we'll be back in a second. All right, first, before we head to St. Moritz, let's talk about the new president of the IOC, who has this very difficult name for us Americans to pronounce. <laughs> so we have <laughs> Henri Count de Bayer Latou, who, let's be real, I know it's probably not uh, the you know correct thing to do, but I'll probably just call him Count Henry from here on out. So uh, anyway, he was originally from Antwerp and he was elected to become a member of the IOC back in 1903. He had actually been the head of the organizing committee for the Antwerp Games for 1920. And then in 1923, he also became the president for the Belgian Olympic Committee. 
Now, after the 1925 Congress for the IOC, he was elected to serve an eight-year term as president, succeeding Hubert Hahn. So I'm sure we'll be talking about Henri a little bit more, especially since the awarding of the infamous 1936 Berlin Games that you just mentioned occurred during his tenure. So yeah, his name is bound to come back up again. Now, there weren't really any super formal bids for these games, but the Swiss were really well prepared and equipped for hosting the new standalone Winter Olympics. They actually ended up putting up three cities for consideration during the IOC's 1926 Congress, Davos, Ingelberg, and St. Moritz. Well, based on the title of the episode... Three guesses which one was picked. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, it's right there for us. There it is, yeah. Yeah, so St. Moritz won with 22 votes, and then one person abstained from voting completely for some reason. The original intention for the Winter Games was that they would be hosted by the same country as the Summer Games each Olympic cycle, but... Yeah, that plan had to get dropped pretty quick here. So uh, it just became really impractical, I think, at the end of the day. Uh, Great idea, but totally impractical. Well, you want to talk about weather problems? My goodness. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So while the Summer Olympics were going to be hosted by Amsterdam in 1928, which we'll get to in our next episode, They recognized that it was more important for the new Winter Games to be hosted somewhere already equipped to do so. This was a financial consideration, a practical consideration, and St. Moritz already had a reputation as a world-class winter sports center. It was the birthplace of Skeleton, as you mentioned in the highlights, of course. Skeleton will make its debut. They already had a bobsleigh track in use. They had nearby mountains for skiing events. Honestly, they really didn't have to do much infrastructure work to get ready for the games. The one thing they really did specifically for the games was to build the world's highest ski jump at that time. So, yeah, all things considered, it it sounded like pretty, pretty cheap affair for them to get ready for the games. So honestly, they sound more prepared than some games even in recent memory for us, they seem more ready to go. So good for them. Yeah. There was one sticky point in the planning, though, which was more of a political issue. But the question came up of, should Germany be invited to these games? As you might recall, it feels like a thousand years ago since it's been a while since we recorded an episode. But Germany had been banned from any international competition since the end of World War I. But there were members of the IOC who felt like St. Moritz would be a good opportunity to go ahead and welcome Germany back into the Olympic movement. Now, there was one group in particular who actually protested this, and that was the Belgians. They were not quite ready to move on yet. And keep in mind that our new IOC president, Count Henry, is Belgian himself. But ultimately, it was decided that Germany would be invited to attend. So again, we're going to kind of 
see this come back here pretty quickly with the decision to award the 1936 games to them. We'll get there, mm-hmm. but it is important to mention here because we're starting to set the stage a little bit for 1936. Yeah. So Sarah, tell us a little bit about uh, opening ceremony, kind of what came next with the actual games happening. Uh, so the St. Moritz opening ceremony was held on February 11th at the St. Moritz Olympic ice rink. The games were opened by Edmund Schultes, who was the president of the Helvetic Confederation. Without getting lost in the depths of Swiss history and politics, it basically was a national political organization working for a more centralized and unified nation. Yeah, and I apologize in advance to any Swiss people out there that hear this and say that is, you know, painting too broad of a stroke on it because <laughs> I, I started doing the research in the history on this and it got messy really quickly. So this was the easiest explanation I could come up with. So if if I got it wrong, my apologies for that. But hopefully I got close enough to what that organization was. <laughs> so. Yes, I, I know. I know we don't claim to be Swiss historians. <laughs> no, Swiss historians. <laughs> oh, I like it. Again, sorry to the people of Switzerland if we're offending you. Yes. yes. Um, <laughs> promise us on our intent. Um, so due to the difficult weather conditions faced by the games, some of the figure skating events were held in the Kjolm Hotel since it had its own skating rink. Apparently, it was pretty normal at that time for hotels in the area to have their own skating rink and curling sheets. So... I mean, that's that's pretty sweet. It sounds really yeah. fancy. I Yeah, I think that sounds really cool. And I also think that sounds like a missed opportunity for them to just have gone ahead and had a curling event here at these games. Don't right? you think? Yes. <laughs> I'm still upset about it. I'll be salty about that until it comes back. Oh, that's going to be a minute. <laughs> I know. So. I know. And if you don't know, just just know it's going to be a long time. Yeah, like 70 years. (laughs) First up with the competition, we're going to talk about the women. We know we always love to see how far women are progressing. So let's talk about what women were allowed to do in St. Moritz. Emphasis on allowed to do. I know. I know. (laughs) (sighs) I know. But maybe maybe Count Henry has better feelings about it than Sir Pierre. Yeah, I wouldn't give him that much credit, but go ahead. We'll we'll get deeper on that. Maybe, maybe. Um, Still still kind of in the dark ages, but women were allowed to do figure skating and pairs figure skating. (laughs) But at least they could be there. (laughs) At least they could be there. All right. I know. I know. And, And I know... I'm getting way far ahead of ourselves, but I also yeah. know there was a reason that women were not allowed to do ski jumping for a long time. And that's a whole right. other story for another time. But exactly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> moving on about the women who were allowed to be there. Uh, Sonia Henny of Northway of Norway. And she won the women's individual figure skating and became an international figure skating sensation. She was only 15 when she won the gold and her record as the youngest winner stood for 74 years. In fact, let's talk about Sonia a bit more. She actually made her debut, her Olympic debut in Chamonix 1924 at the age of 11. 
No big I deal. I love it. I know. I know. I'm like, you're barely a decade old. Like, that blew my mind. Yeah. I mean, I was building things with Legos at the age of 11 when she was going to the Olympics. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And hey, she was allowed to be there. <laughs> yeah. Um, she did place last at those Olympics because during her free skate, she kept having to go over to the side of the rink to ask her coach what she should do next to beef up the routine. <laughs> I love that it, so much. I know. I know. It sounds so cute. But at least she competed and she didn't give up. That's the Olympic spirit. There you go. She would go on <laughs> to win three golds in the women's individual event here in 1928, Lake Plas in 1932, and then at garmisch Partenkirchen 1936, mm-hmm. which that's a mouthful, but we got to get used to it, which is unthinkable <laughs> nowadays, especially in women's figure skating, which, yeah, that's some yeah. good longevity in the sport. At St. Moritz, she placed first, or she was placed first by six of the seven judges. There's always that one judge, but you know. But yeah, in always Le- that one. I know. I'm like, <laughs> who paid you? Um, in Lake Placid, <laughs> 1932, she got unanimous first place votes. So you'll probably hear us mention her again. In her career, she became so famous and popular that police would have to be called to do traffic control when she would visit major cities like New York or Prague. So she's like, I don't know, Taylor Swift level. You show up and everyone knows who you are. That's pretty wild for thinking about that time period before social media. Good for her. Yeah. I mean, she was legit a real olympic star mm-hmm. <laughs> at that point one of the really earliest ones who got to this level of fame it's pretty remarkable yeah um she also won 10 consecutive world championships a record that still has not been broken she also had a career in show business starring in the films then ice and serenade and also touring in ice shows around the world which helped popularize figure skating and more places so (laughs) girl had herself a career yeah and i think um i think we should have a video of her doing one of those ice shows in our youtube channel playlist for these games so people can always go check that out and watch her skate and see how good she was uh later on but anyway in the pairs event skating and real life couple Andre and Pierre Brunet of France improved on their bronze from Chamonix by winning gold. They would defend their gold in Lake Placid four years later, too, for some Olympic Winter Games deja vu. The pair <laughs> later moved to the U.S. and went into coaching. And Olympic medalist Carol Heiss and Scott Hamilton are counted among their students. So what a legacy. Yeah, that's braggable, to say the least. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in yeah, terms of and legacy. I don't, know if we'll always be able to identify real life couples but for everyone that Mm -hmm. watches the olympics and thinks i need to know if this is a real life couple or not this one was you're welcome courtesy of jonathan (laughs) (laughs) because i feel like that's always a thing that people are asking and people like get their hearts broken when they realize nope they're just friends or whatever just a team yeah, like they should mark it on their names in some way. Like, okay, these people are just in the friend zone. These people yeah. are, you know, are are not. They are yeah. they are a real life couple. So. <laughs> so, so this was real life. You're welcome, everybody. Yeah. And then finally, in men's figure skating, despite suffering from a badly swollen knee, Gillis Grafström of Sweden 
won his third consecutive gold in the men's event. His first gold in the event was in 1920, where figure skating was part of the summer games. And then, of course, he won again in 1924 and 1928. So technically, he's considered a a gold medalist in both the summer and winter games. He was, we suppose, the original three-peater. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, what do you think? Do you think it... I feel like that counts as being a summer and winter gold medalist. Yeah, because the IOC kind of retroactively recognizes all of the Olympic Games before 1924 Mm -hmm. as a summer designation, even if they featured winter sports. So it's one of those weird things where technically he is considered a summer Olympian and a winter Olympian, even though we can recognize it is a winter sport, <laughs> period. Yeah. But still, pretty braggable because not many people get to fall into that category, um, really, in the history of the games. So, yeah. But yeah, let's go ahead and move on to bobsled, uh, of course, which is always one of my favorites. So in 1928, for some reason, we didn't have four-man bobsled. We had... Five man bobsled. And as I dug into this a little bit, it's apparently the same thing. The rules at the time for the sport allowed for an optional fifth man in the bobsleigh if you really wanted to have a fifth person in there. (laughs) Because why not? Yeah, why not? The more the merrier. Uh, All I could think of was man, this was a really missed opportunity for Five Guys Burgers to sponsor (laughs) a team. They'll never be able to do it again. So no. Now, this was the first time that the U.S. sent a bobsled team. And actually, the U.S. sent two teams and was victorious in winning both gold and silver with those teams. So the gold medal winning team was led by driver Billy Fisk, who was only 16 years old at the time. Again, I was getting my driver's license at 16. He was driving a bobsled to a gold medal when he was 16. And you might also, if you recognize his name, that's because we mentioned him briefly back in our 1920 episode. Uh, He was the guy who recruited boxer Eddie Egan to join the 1932 bobsled team. So there you go. And then... Rounding out the bronze medal position was Germany. And of course, in future episodes, I'm sure we'll be mentioning Germany many, many more times in the history (laughs) of sliding sports. So you can prepare yourself for that. Um, In fact, while we're on the topic of sliding sports, we're going to go ahead and chat about skeleton. So a fun fact is skeleton is actually considered the world's first sliding sport. And as you already mentioned in the highlights, this was its first appearance. It was held at Cresta Run, which is considered the birthplace of Skeleton, so much so that the sport's original name was Cresta. You might also see it sometimes referred to as tobogganing, uh, both here and then later on at the 1948 Winter Olympics, which were also held here in St. Moritz. Yeah, I'm just going to say to make myself look smart from now on when I'm watching Skeleton with Friends, I'm only going to be referring to it as Cresta. Like, if if you're my real friend, you'll know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the sport of Cresta. Yeah, other people might think you're talking about toothpaste. 
or something like that, though. <laughs> so, Fair um, <laughs> but yeah, so speaking of Cresta, Cresta Run is a famous track in its own right because it's made of natural ice. This does pose a difficulty because it means it has to be reconstructed every single winter. And that's been true ever since the track was originally built in the 1870s. But still, fun little fact about it. Now, the U.S. also went 1-2 here in Skeleton with brothers Jennison and John Heaton. So here we go, Sarah, more Olympic siblings. We love to see it. Yeah, they were also, get this, members of the silver-winning U.S. bobsled team. So that's kind of fun. Good grief. Yeah, yeah, they had a busy games. And then bronze for Skeleton was won by the U.K.'s David Carnegie, who was also the 11th Earl of Northesk in Scotland. Now, Sarah, I know that makes them sound rather dignified being an earl and all but he was a pretty colorful bloke just a year before the (laughs) saint moritz games he pled guilty to drunk and disorderly conduct after him and his buddy were arrested for uprooting a lamp post in london (laughs) (laughs) that is beyond ridiculous yeah so like where we are right now in current events Uh, As we record this is that the Queen of England just died. So this is the kind of guy Mm. that would not probably be allowed to wear his uh, military (laughs) uniform (laughs) to the funeral. (laughs) Yeah, probably not. But uh, but good gracious, pulling up an entire lamppost out of the ground. That's just wild. Uh, (laughs) I mean, clearly the guy was strong. Yeah. I mean, good upper body (laughs) strength, so there you go. Uh, But anyway, before we get into any more events, uh, let's take another quick break, and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about a demonstration event, skioring. So we have that to look forward to. Okay, skioring, Sarah. Have you ever heard of this sport? (laughs) Take my Olympic card. I don't think so until we were reading for this episode. What about you? (laughs) Well, no one has to take your Olympic card because it's a demonstration sport. And and we don't always talk about the demonstration sports here on the show. But sometimes we like to make an exception. (laughs) And I think you're about to see why. So, uh, which I think I'm going to have a video of this also in our playlist for these games, because skioring still exists. It's not terribly popular, but it does still exist. So it has been or it had been contested a few times back during the Nordic Games, which, of course, the Winter Olympics kind of replaced. But This was its only appearance as a demonstration sport. So basically, it's a skier being pulled by a group of either dogs, horses, or sometimes a snowmobile. Now, if you ask me, it sounds and looks like a grand old time. (laughs) Kind of like water skiing, except the water is frozen, of course, in this scenario. Yeah. I was going to say, sign me up. 
Yeah, it looks like a lot of fun. In St. Moritz, it was contested using horses, and they pulled the skiers across a frozen lake in an oval track. Apparently, it was partially included in the games as a demonstration sport because Pierre de Coubertin was a fan of it. And it seems like others found it kind of dull. <laughs> so, his, oh, what Pierre wants, Pierre yeah. gets, I guess. Yeah, he got it featured, but his his love for it did not catch on with other people. So uh, if you have the book Total Olympics, there is a picture of it in there. And there's also um, what's a little confusing is in that picture, there's also a rider on the horse. So I don't know quite what to make of that. Um, and if you're wondering uh, in the White Stadium documentary, which you mentioned earlier and of course was the first official olympic film uh there is also footage in there of a female skier being pulled by a riderless horse before she then falls down into the snow but as far as we know it was only a male competition so i guess she was just skioring for fun so i'm happy she made it to the film (laughs) we'll take what we can get Yeah, she made it into the film, at least. Uh, But it kind of made me think a little bit of a less impressive version of the Iditarod race that happens Mm -hmm. in Alaska. Honestly, that's kind of one of my bucket list items is to see the Iditarod race. If I can ever mentally prepare myself for that kind of cold as a spectator. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's where I'm out. I need, yeah. I need like one of those little domes or something where I can just sit inside with a fire, you know, what, like, like an those igloo, really, not like an igloo, but you oh, know, okay. they're like, they have windows in them. They're round. Oh yeah. yeah, I, yeah, know, yeah. I feel like they've yeah. become kind of popular in recent years for restaurants and stuff like that. Yeah. Give, give me that. Yeah. And, no, and I, I can go. I see what you're saying. Yeah, we had a friend who moved to Alaska a number of years ago, and literally her first day there, she posted on Facebook a picture of a temperature sign, like one of those bank signs, and it was something awful, like negative 20 Fahrenheit, and she said, what <laughs> no. did I just do to myself? Because she she was from here, she was from Texas, spent her whole life in Texas, <laughs> and then moved to Alaska. Absolutely so. not. While we're thinking of how cold Alaska can get, let's let's think about cross-country skiing. So what happened there, Sarah? Here comes cross-country skiing, which, yes, that's my version of Here Comes Diggins going back to uh, <laughs> 2018. Sorry, guys. Yeah. Um, so the cross-country skiing, the 50-kilometer event was particularly plagued by the weather problems in St. Moritz. Temperatures went from zero degrees Celsius, which for us Americans is 32 degrees Fahrenheit at the start of the race, and then shot up to 25 degrees Celsius, which for us is 77 degrees Fahrenheit. That's a huge jump. And honestly, it sounds like a bit of the weather we get sometimes here in North Texas, which we're not exaggerating. It happens. Yeah. I've literally seen it go from 30 degrees to 85 degrees in the span of eight hours here. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's it's absolutely wild. Um, so we know it, we know it happens, but yeah, I can see how that would make these race conditions really difficult. <laughs> yeah, 
Sweden's pair, Eric Hedlund, won, finishing 13 minutes faster than any other competitor. Later that night, it would rain, which further ruined the skiing courses. So that just sounds awful. That would do it. Mm -hmm. In the 18-kilometer event, Norway's Johan Gerudum Sparatan, which I know I butchered that name, but... (laughs) We're close. Think you got uh, close. He, <laughs> he won gold, and while we're talking about him, he also won gold in Nordic combined. So I'm calling him Johan G. Um, yeah. Well done, Johan G. Yeah. So okay. Speaking of Nordic combined, uh, this you know shouldn't be a huge surprise, but it was a sweep for Norway. I know. Massive shocker there. And our buddy Anders uh, Haugen, who we talked about back in our 1924 Chamonix episode, he competed here, but he came in 25th. So uh, kind of had a rough time that this go around, but still, at least he he made an appearance. And then uh, let's talk about speed skating, because we saw some weather problems there, too, that actually led to a bit of controversy in the 10,000-kilometer event. So we had Bernd Avensen of Norway, who was actually the defending world champion coming into that event. But then he was beaten by American Irving Jaffe during their heat together. Okay. Now, later on in the day, temperatures were rising during the event, kind of like what you just described there with cross-country skiing. And it started to cause the ice to thaw. Obviously a problem for skating. (laughs) And um, with more heats still left to run, the Norwegian official decided to just cancel the entire competition. Well, as you can imagine, some people cried foul at this. So the IOC stepped in and they said, okay, you know what? We're going to award Jaffe the gold medal because he was in the lead at the time that the event was canceled. But then cue the drama the International Skating Union stepped in and they overruled the decision of the IOC saying, no, the event was canceled by the official and they took the gold away from Jaffe and they returned the status of the competition to canceled. You know, I guess this gives a whole other meaning to cancel culture going on here. (laughs) So... (laughs) That's a thing here. <laughs> yeah, and I'm just so glad that we have the technology now for them to do this stuff indoors. Indoors, thank you. Yes, I was <laughs> just thinking that. Now, Avonson, who, again, was the defending world champ, he publicly stated he believed that Jaffe should be awarded the gold medal, but nothing else at this point could be done to appeal the decision. So... Jaffe would get another Olympic chance four years later in Lake Placid. Uh, I think we'll save that story for when we discuss those games. So we will talk about him again and see if he fares any better at those games when he gets a second chance. Uh, But speaking of Berndt Avenson, he won gold, silver, and bronze here at St. Moritz. So he won gold in the 500-meter event for speed skating silver in the 1500 meter event and then bronze in the 5000 meter event so 
I guess he just had to complete the whole collection and take home one of each, which is pretty cool, I think. Yeah. And then also our buddy Klaus Thunberg that we mentioned at 1924 Chamonix, uh, he's our Finnish friend. He came back here to win two golds in both the 500 meter and 1500 meter races for speed skating. So he got to add to his medal hall, which is always fun. Good for him. Yeah, but let's, uh, I'm going to pass the puck over to you for (laughs) hockey. (laughs) Okay. So in hockey, we had 11 countries that competed in the tournament, but no surprise, Canada came out on top with the gold yet again with a goal margin of 38 to zero. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, dominant. They were always going to be a dynasty. Sweden won silver and Switzerland took the bronze. And then we're going to jump over to... Ski jumping. So, like in 1924, there was only one ski jump event, but this is where we saw Japan make its debut with Motohiko Bond participating, even though he ended up coming in last. We're just happy that he was there. Good for him. The reigning world champ at the time was Canadian Nels Nelson, but due to financial problems, the plan to get him to the games was for him to work for his fare aboard a freighter ship, which he seemed cool with. The British organizers, who were in charge of organizing the Canadian delegation, thought this was not fitting, though, and they mixed the idea. As a result, Nels never got to compete in this or any other games, which that's <laughs> kind of sad. It's more than sad. Yeah. That's devastating. My heart goes out to him. <laughs> I know. Like, he's willing to work his way over there on a freighter ship, and like, which is not easy work. Like, that's exhausting day-to-day work just so he can go to the Olympics and then the British organizers are going to come in and be like, "Uh, that's not appropriate for one of our athletes to be a worker on a ship. So, no, you have to stay home. It's so devastating. I know. I I know. I know. And it it was good, honest labor. It's not like he was breaking any kind of rules are being shady it's i hate it yeah well and it also is kind of indicative of some of the problems that the amateur code of that time posed for a lot of these world-class athletes (laughs) who couldn't be paid for what they were good at but then how do they get to these international competitions right anyway that's a whole other soapbox we'll yeah (laughs) we'll let it sit for now (laughs) yeah Meanwhile, when the competition happened in St. Moritz, a reduced speed was used during the first round because of the presence of ice on the end run. But several of the Central European competitors requested it be increased for the second round. Scandinavians and U.S. ski jumpers protested this, resulting in a 40-minute discussion interrupting the competition. Eventually, the jury agreed to increase the speed with a compromise of five or more meters of distance. But then the facilitators decided to only move the rope for marking the distances by 4.5 meters. The two Swiss ski jumpers were furious about this and cut the rope and proclaimed any skiers opposed to top speed to be cowards. Incidentally, they fell during their attempts in the second round. Eventually, Norway's Alf Andersen and Sigmund Rude decided to go down the slope in a standing position to reduce their speed, and they ended up taking gold and silver. 
together. <laughs> hey, talk about adapting to the circumstances. <laughs> so, no kidding. And, you know, obviously I wasn't there to be a part of this discussion, but frankly, I think it's kind of unfair to accuse anyone of cowardice if they're willing to do ski jump at any yep. speed. I don't care. <laughs> yep, I agree 100%. <laughs> that sport takes so much just sheer guts when yeah, it comes down I, to it. <laughs> it's one of those sports where, you know, like, oh, curling, we can go try it. Give it a, you know, yeah. give it a throw, see how it goes. Might entertain the idea of walking on a balance beam or something. Ski jumping, absolutely yeah. not. No, thank you. No desire. Yeah. No, I, f- I feel that way about ski jumping. I feel that way about uh, 10 meter platform diving. Oh, gosh, like no. <laughs> all of it is just terrifying to me. But anyway, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and we'll kind of close things out with the legacy of the St. Moritz games. All right, Sarah, let's get into the legacy. Uh, how did things end up here at St. Moritz? Well, the games closed on February 19th. Norway came out on top with winning 16 medals total, seven of which were gold. The U.S. won gold or won six with two gold medals. Sweden won five medals, two gold. Austria won five medals, but no golds. And Finland won four total medals, two of which were gold. The legacy of the 1928 Winter Olympics is that they became the premier winter sport festival, officially replacing the Nordic Games and providing an international level of visibility for winter sports. A more unfortunate legacy is that the host nation Switzerland only won a single medal, bronze, which is the lowest medal hall for any host nation ever in Olympic or Paralympic history. That's quite a bummer. Yeah. Yeah. I always hate that for the host <laughs> nation like you want to see them do well because they put a lot of work into hosting the game so right that's kind of sad but the good news is they will have the chance to rectify that when they host the winter olympics again in 1948 so we will be coming back to saint moritz as we mentioned before and actually they became the first winter games host city to host twice uh but yeah We'll get there. Don't want to get too far uh, ahead of ourselves. If you want to learn more about the 1928 Olympic Games, you can check out the White Stadium documentary on HBO Max. It's about two hours long, and there is a link in the show notes. And just be aware that around 19 minutes in, there are some underclothed individuals out for an early morning ski. <laughs> so, you know, just just fair warning for any of you who might have kiddos running around while you have it playing on the screen. <laughs> so, good, good note, good note. <laughs> yeah, I have seen that much of it to know that it was 19 minutes in. I was like, oh, I better jot this down. <laughs> yep. so. And we know it's HBO, so they're not going to censor that. but if you enjoyed this episode and we really hope you did then please tell an olympics and paralympics loving friend about the show next time we'll be headed to the netherlands for the summer olympics of amsterdam 1928 but until then odyssey you later the games odyssey podcast is a production of wardrobe media llc this episode was written hosted produced and edited by jonathan jordan and co-hosted by sarah Patton. Show notes, including research sources and transcripts, can be found on our website, gamesodyssey.com. 
Olympic is a trademark of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, USOPC. Any use of Olympic in the Games Odyssey podcast is strictly for informational, commentary, and educational purposes. The Games Odyssey podcast is not an official podcast of the USOPC and is not sponsored, endorsed, or officially affiliated with the USOPC or the International Olympic Committee or International Paralympic Committee. The content of Games Odyssey podcast does not reflect the opinions, standards, views, or policies of the USOPC, and the USOPC in no way warrants that content features in the Games Odyssey podcast is accurate.